Good morning, everyone. So good to have you here. If you're visiting with us, I hope you feel very welcome. We, it, it brightens our day to have visitors come and, and join us for our worship service. Uh, we hope you feel very welcome throughout the, the service. And if you have any questions afterwards, please feel free to ask. Um, if you're a member here, you're also valuable to us and we're glad that you're here as well. And we appreciate all of our members and the work that they do in making this congregation uh, work and, and the, the way that each one of us plays a part in making the things that we do happen. Sure, I'm glad that, uh, that you have your Bibles. We're going to be digging into Isaiah again today and looking into chapter 9. So if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 with me. Isaiah chapter 9. Our reading this morning, uh, thank you Abby for that, it was from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a really interesting passage. David looks at God's dwelling place, the tabernacle, and at that time it was simply a tent. And he said, that's not good enough for God. I'm going to build something bigger, I'm going to build something grander. I want to build him a house. And so David says to God, you know, I want to build you a house. And God responds like this, he says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house instead. It's a, it's a brilliant passage. It's a, it's a great twist. And God says, I'm not going to build you a physical house. I'm going to build you something bigger and greater than that. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a household, a, a royal um, dynasty that will come from you. He says, one day, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of a kingdom that will never be destroyed. One day, from your line, from your house, I'm going to bring forth a king who will reign forever. Unlike any kingdom that's ever come before, unlike any kingdom that ever will be, this kingdom will never be destroyed, and this king will reign always. And with every successive generation of David's family comes that new hope. Is this going to be the king that God has promised? Is this going to be the one who will sit on David's throne to reign forever? And so they waited, and along came Solomon. And Solomon made a bunch of good decisions and a whole lot of really terrible decisions. After him came Rehoboam. After him, after him, the, the, the list of kings from David's lineage went on and on and on. And still that king that would reign forever was in anticipation and the Jews waited patiently and waited for that king who would come we still do this today it's still very exciting when a, a prince or a princess is born when a, a someone who is new to the the line to the throne is born um, I don't know whether you're into the royals but you know that they're they're very exciting for a lot of people don't you do you remember when um, prince George was born back in 2013. There's so much hype. Everyone was so excited, even though it means practically nothing to us as Australians. The, the, the royal family doesn't have really any bearing on the, on the practicalities of your life or my life. But it's still exciting to see the, the royal line going on. And, and with the birth of a new child comes a, a new king, a new queen, a, a new ruler to the throne. And that's exciting. And all throughout the ancient world, when you had more dynasties who were ruled by successive generations, they would celebrate the, um, 
the coming to the throne or the birth of a new ruler because that meant that the, the kingdom would continue. That meant that there was hope for the future. That's what we're looking at in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. And by the way, even if you're not excited about this royal family, I'm sure you've been excited about some royal family before. I mean, it's the plot of about half of Disney's movies, whether it's Frozen or it's Tangled. They're all about the the line to the throne, aren't they? And the new prince, the new princess being born and and how are they going to get married? How are they going to find a way to continue the kingdom? Um, So even if we don't do it in real life, we do it in our movies. We love this idea of looking forward to a new ruler. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to go through verse by verse just like we did last week. And um, I'll put the verses up on the screen, but really encourage you to read along in your own translation, in your own Bible, make any notes that you want as you go along. Um, So just a quick recap, if you weren't with us last week or if you've forgotten because it was seven days ago, um, Isaiah chapter 1 is what we examined last week. And Isaiah chapter 1 deals with... um, several different concepts that kind of come up throughout the rest of the book. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about the fact that Israel had broken a covenant with God. And it's a law court scene that's presented. And Isaiah is is, uh, kind of the prosecutor here. He's bringing up the charges against Israel and saying, you had an agreement with God that you would obey his commandments and that he would protect you. Now you've broken your end of the agreement and therefore this contract has broken down. He also presents sin um, and evil and wickedness as this sickness that was eating them up from the inside and that they were largely blind about. He, he points out to them a point that's always relevant to all religious people um, that just because you're doing religious things, that doesn't mean you're okay. It doesn't mean that you can um, turn a blind eye to moral depravity in your life. Isn't that necessary in the world that we live in, in a world where religious institutions are being caught out for living hypocritically, for uh, having religious observances, um, but, for being, um, but for having moral standards that are, that are awful and, and the height of wickedness and doing all of that in private? Isaiah calls that out 2,700 years ago. It's just as relevant a message as it is for today's religious world. And he gives them a glimmer of hope in chapter 1. And he says that the faithless city, the city that is the epitome of unfaithfulness, one day in the future, uh, there is hope for it returning to faithfulness. There is hope that it can one day return to being in covenant with God once more. Isaiah chapter 9 expands on that hope. And so this is going to be a much more upbeat lesson. Um, Last week was a bit of doom and gloom, um, but this week the sunshine comes out and and things are a bit happier. It starts off like this, Isaiah 9 and verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now you might be thinking there, What's he talking about? Zebulun, Naphtali, Jordan, Galilee, all of these places. I don't know where that is. Well, let's have a look at where that is. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel. You remember when the Israelites came into Canaan's land, it was divided up. Each tribe got their allotted portion. We have the Dead Sea down here. We have the Sea of Galilee up here and the Jordan River connects them. The land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun are up here. And by the time you get to the New Testament, they're not called Naphtali and Zebulun anymore. They're called, it's called the region of Galilee. And this is really important. 
um, because Galilee is going to be the place where Jesus is born. Galilee, not born, sorry, where Jesus grows up and where he lives and does most of his ministry. He's born in Bethlehem down here, but he does most of his work in the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee, in Capernaum, Nazareth, and those areas. What Isaiah is saying here is in his day, the Assyrians had come down from the north and they had started attacking the, the countryside of the Israelites. And they'd started with Naphtali, and they'd started with Zebulun. So those areas had been decimated by the Assyrian army. They were a wasteland. The cities were lying in ruins. The people were scattered. And Isaiah says, even though it's doom and gloom right now for Naphtali and Zebulun, there is hope in days to come. In the future... These areas are going to not be desolate, but are going to be filled with the knowledge of the Saviour. Look at what he says in, in verse 2 here. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. It's a beautiful picture. He's saying sunrise is coming, guys. It's night time now. It's all dark, it's all miserable right now, but there is sunrise coming soon. And when that light comes, it's going to be a beautiful light. So keep your finger in Isaiah there and flip over to Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 and verses 12 through 17. This is after Jesus has been baptised, after he faces the temptations in the wilderness. And this is the beginning of his work. This is when he turns 30 and he starts to go out and preach for the first time. In verses 12 through 17 it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Isaiah is talking about. He's saying sunrise is coming and then Matthew says sunrise has come. Jesus has come and he's started his preaching work. He started preaching about the good news of God's kingdom. And that is the sunrise and we are living in the light now. We are living in the light of Christ's teaching. We are living in the light of Christ's kingdom which he has established and which you and I are citizens of. Let's go back to Isaiah 9. And verse 3, it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You see, Israel at the time was getting smaller and smaller with each successive empire that would come up against them, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, as well as the threats from the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites. I mean, Israel was just was getting smaller and smaller. And, and it, Isaiah looks forward to a time where he says, these things are going to turn around. God's people are not going to shrink. They're going to start growing again in those latter times. 
You have increased its joy. This is talking about God. God has multiplied the nation. God has increased its joy. They rejoice because uh, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The people who see the sunrise of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, they are going to be rejoicing. That is the response that you and I should have when the Saviour is born. When the Saviour comes to save us from our sins and to bring us into his kingdom, it's joy. It's a, it's a response of happiness, of, of pure, deep joy, knowing that things are getting better because Jesus has come into this world. As with the joy at the harvest, you know when you get a good crop and you're rejoicing? You know when you divide the spoils, when the nation that's fighting against you, you, you finally defeat them in the ancient world and you divide the spoils, the land, the food between you. You rejoice because you've got these resources. He's saying that's going to be the kind of joy that will come upon these regions of deep darkness right now. And that's why when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, what did they say to the shepherds in the field? They said, fear not. For I bring you good news of great joy for all people. The news of Jesus' birth, the news that there's a new king in town, brings great joy to you and I. Luke 2 and verse 10. And that's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. The response to the new king being born, for you and I, ought to be joy, a heart that's overflowing in it. He says in Isaiah 9, verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So you remember what a yoke is. Um, this is what a yoke looks like. So you have some uh, oxen and you have a, a piece of timber or, or something that goes over their necks and often binds two together, and they will be um, carrying a plough behind them or something, and this was how they would plough their fields. So the yoke was something that was, was weighing you down. It was controlling you. It was telling you where to go. And Isaiah is saying here, the yoke of his burden, of the burden of the people of Israel, God is going to break. Specifically, Jesus is going to break that yoke that is on you right now. If you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. This is really interesting. Um, Isaiah borrows a lot of language from the Exodus, from the time that the Israelites spent in Egypt. So Leviticus 26 and verse 13. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So he's saying there, when you were in Egypt, you were a slave. You were in slavery to those people. You had a yoke around your neck and God came down to Egypt and he busted the yoke right open so that you could be free. And then Isaiah says to the people in Israel, you've got a yoke again. You've gone and enslaved yourself to sin and now you are carrying around this great yoke that's on you. And Jesus is going to come once again in a new exodus. He's going to free the slaves 
This time not slaves of Egypt, this time slaves of sin. It says there um, the, the rod of his oppressor, that word oppressor, is actually borrowed from Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 5. It's better translated taskmaster because they were under the taskmasters in Egypt. And God says, just like you had taskmasters back in Egypt, so you have people who are controlling you and who are enslaving you today. It's your sin that is weighing you down. It's your sin that's controlling you and that you are a slave to. But Jesus is coming, the King is coming to break that yoke, to break that staff, to break that rod. Does that make sense? As on the day of Midian, you remember the day of Midian? This is uh, Judges chapter 7, it's a reference to that. Gideon takes an army of 300 people, a, a tiny army, and he defeats the Midianites who were a massive army as numerous as the locusts, it says in Judges 7. Just like God had provided victory for small Gideon and his tiny army, so God will provide victory to the minority people of God who are faithful to him, just like that day of Midian. He says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All of your warfare things, whether it's your boots, whether it's your garments that are soaked in blood because of warfare, we're going to burn them as fuel. Wouldn't that be fantastic to see a world where we burn all of our weapons because we are at peace with one another? Because mankind has finally found a way to have peace? To see great big piles of guns and ammunition being burned because we have finally found peace? And, and God says... Jesus will bring that peace. Jesus is coming as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Here's the um, joy of it. Here's the wonderful result. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What's it talking about? A child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is talking about 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is talking about that new king that they were waiting, who was going to sit on the throne and rule God's kingdom. The government is going to be on his shoulders now, not on the shoulders of any earthly king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful counsellor. Have you ever received bad advice in your life? Do you have people in your life who are foolish in what they say, in what they think, in what they do? Do you ever do foolish things? The point of this is to say there's a, a counsellor coming, someone who will provide you with wisdom. Not like any earthly ruler who might get a couple of things right about the economy, but they're wrong about this. They get this right and get that wrong. He's saying this one will bring true wisdom. Mighty God, for anyone who doubts that Christ really is um, the Son of God, that he's more than a religious teacher. You take them to this verse. He's the mighty God. He's going to be the everlasting Father. So in chapter 1 and verses 2 and 4, God said that Israel didn't even know who their father was. 
Israel was, was dumber than an ox. It was, it was stupider than a donkey because it didn't even recognize who its maker was. But Christ will come and they'll recognize their father forevermore. And finally, the prince of peace. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let's read verses 10 through 14. Luke 2. Let's start in verse 8. Luke 2, verse 8 to 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, In the city of David, the city where David came from, just tie that together, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a wonderful, wonderful day in history. A day the people anticipated, a day the people looked forward to. When the king would come, when peace would come, when they would be set free. And John 8, 36, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And Galatians 5 and verse 1 talks about how you are free for freedom. Christ has set you free. Do not use your, your freedom as a chance to go back and enslave yourself again. Because the king's come and you're not meant to be a slave of sin anymore. You're meant to rise above that. No longer will you be enslaved. From now on, forevermore, Christ is king of his kingdom. He's king of your life. And we bow down to him. I know that we emphasise uh, Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, and that's a fantastic thing to do. But Jesus' day of birth was a wonderful thing. The Bible makes that very clear. On the day that Jesus was born, hope came into this world. On the day that Jesus was born, the angels were singing, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And that's a wonderful thing. Instead of spending a lot of time talking to you about that, we're going to sing about that now. Um, so we're going to sing a couple of songs Um, to finish our service today. I know this is an early finish, but please sing along with joy in your heart, knowing that Christ has set us free and reigns as the King on David's throne today. Thank you, everyone.